Welcome to Scores and Pours. Today, we're going to switch it up, people. Switching it into jazz. Yes. I hope that's okay. I love jazz. I used to work in jazz radio. I used to do a morning show uh, at a jazz station. You know your shit. I do. <laughs> well, I also used to play. I mean, that's where my first jazz education came from, was actually playing it on my trumpet. People that know us both individually or together Mm -hmm. as scores and pours homies are like, they've asked, they said, why classical? Why, why haven't you guys either, why didn't you settle on jazz? Why have you not explored jazz much? Cause we have, we did do a crossover episode. Yeah. And we needed just, we needed it to be the right time. Cause we always knew jazz was going to be part of scores and pours. Let's be honest. Yeah. I mean, it kind of has to be because it's also amazing and wonderful. And who doesn't, Listen to jazz with a martini in their hand, which is exactly what this episode is going to be about. Yeah. Well, it's hilarious because Jill Mott, sommelier, said to me, I'm Emily, that she wanted to do an episode about precision. And you said something about a martini. And is there anything in jazz that lines up with that? Well, I I had said, is there anything... In jazz or classical, classical music, I think, is what I asked you first. And then we were like, wow, maybe this is a good time. We just, I think it was very much so a collaborative effort. Yeah. But Mm -hmm. when you were like, what are you going to do? What are you going to talk about precision-wise? And I was like, I've wanted to make a martini on this show for so long. (laughs) Because we've made Mai Tais and gin and tonics and Irish coffees when we have explored the world of cocktails and spirits, which we don't do often on the show, Mm -hmm. as often Mm -hmm. as I'd like, although... It reflects my drinking style because I don't drink a lot of cocktails. I love cocktails. Don't drink them often. Yeah. But there's no better way, I think, to showcase the precision in cocktail making than a martini. And I think a lot of folks that are like bartenders, folks, no, that's not true. A lot of bartenders, I think, would agree with me. I don't think a lot of them would be like, that's no, there are plenty of other cocktails that require Mm -hmm. as much precision. Anytime you say anything about a martini and jazz, uh, if one knows about jazz, one would think of a very famous alto saxophonist named Paul Desmond, because that's what he said he wanted to sound like. He always said, I want to sound like a dry martini. It's such a synonymous term with Paul Desmond that uh, it seemed like, well, let's talk about Paul Desmond. The other person I thought of in terms of precision was Clifford Brown, who only gave us four years of worth of recording because he died when he was 25. So we'll talk about Clifford Brown, quite possibly the best trumpeter ever to walk the planet. Um, Indisputably, really. I mean, there aren't a lot of people who would dispute his absolute brilliance and virtuosity. Would not not a lot of people be like, oh, Miles is better. Well, it and I'd have to know what if they know what they're talking about before I believed them. You okay. know what I mean? They'd have to make a pretty good case in terms of Miles Davis being a better trumpeter. Absolutely not. Maybe a better jazz musician, sure, but a better trumpeter, God no. 
Oh my God, <laughs> Clifford yes. Brown plays circles around Miles Davis. And I mean, I just can't think of anybody who could dispute that in terms of technicality. Like Clifford Brown was an absolutely brilliantly technically gifted trumpeter. And he just happened to also have a great sound, beautiful fat sound and, uh, you know, a knack for improvisation. Miles, on the other hand, when I think of Miles Davis, I don't think of him as like this virtuosic player. I think of Miles Davis as a, as a tremendously genius musician, composer, and visionary. You know what I mean? Yeah, I like, think it's visionary, just, yeah. Yeah, it's just different. It's just a different thing. So a little apples to oranges there in a lot of ways with those two. But um, but because, I mean, obviously Miles is remains one of my absolute favorite trumpeters. So those that was kind of my mindset behind choosing those two individuals, Paul Desmond, because he literally is quoted as saying that's what he wanted to sound like, a dry martini. And uh, Clifford Brown, because um, just what a what a gift it was to the world to have him uh, leave it just those four small years of recordings behind from 19 from about 1952 to 1956. So uh, so yeah, that's that's what I'm going to share with you today and I can't wait to have a martini. So should we start with Let's not start with the martini cuz we need to get people there as to why it's so precise. We will. And I think we should start with some Paul Desmond, but first tell us what on earth is a dry martini. A dry martini is gin, not vodka. And let's not even talk about dry, because when people say, I want a dry martini, it's sort of like saying, I really want a dry red wine. It's kind of cool to say, "Gotcha." I want a dry martini. When mm-hmm. in reality, if you're making a fucking good martini, <laughs> you have you can't even tell what's what, because it's all just so good together, okay. right? The little bit of orange bitters, oh, gin being the star of the show, not vodka, and then the smallest amount of a dry vermouth. Now, now why do you even have to designate the difference between gin and vodka? Like, how did a vodka martini ever even become a thing? Assholes. Okay. No, just kidding. <laughs> no, that's not true. I have a, a, a dear friend who loves a vodka martini, but she's wrong because it's not called a vodka martini. It's called a kangaroo cocktail. Cute. So just because <laughs> you put it in a martini glass does not a martini make. Yeah. Apple teenies, that's not a thing. Yeah. Now you have apple gross liqueur that doesn't even have apples in it in a martini glass. Yeah. Teeny, it does not make. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. so know, gin. Gin. Dry vermouth, because there are white, sweet, you know, so dry vermouth. And then uh, a little a garnish of lemon, twist. Not lemon, not olive. Not, not a wedge, not you can just do, a little. You can do different things, but the classic is a little bit of a lemon twist. Okay. And then a couple dashes in the whole mix, so not on the top, as we're stirring, and we'll talk about why we stir and not shake in a second, of orange bitters. And orange bitters, that's like legit a part of the whole picture, portfolio of a martini. Well, yes, it is currently. And where they think that probably came from is the history of the martini dates back to the mid to late 1800s. Okay. And it's likely, the birthplace of the martini was likely Martinez, California. Now, Martinez, there's also a cocktail called the Martinez, and it includes orange curacao, so orange liqueur. Mm. And it's got like sweet vermouth, it's got dry vermouth, it's got gin, it's got a few different things in it. But likely that pull from that citrus component comes from perhaps eliminating the orange curacao, which is sweet, 
and thicker and overall kind of more just in your face and less elegant. Okay. And that was dialed back because orange bitters, I think, was a part of it still quite prominently like through the 1940s. And then it sort of disappeared from the situation and other, you know, people were making like, that's when the dry vermouth, we're going to have a dry vermouth and we're only going to, they're like quotes Winston Churchill, I think was one of the guys who's like, a great dry martini is gin and nodding to France. Meaning like you're looking at France, you're looking at vermouth, but you're not putting it in there or something like that, right? And uh, other people would say like Alfred Hitchcock, I think. Alfred Hitchcock, I believe, was into them. And he was like, a great dry martini is gin with and and grabbing and shaking the vermouth bottle or something. So a lot of people, that's where the whole, when you hear people that are like, oh, I just want a really dry martini. And they just coat the glass with vermouth and then dump the rest out. It's like. What? Weird. Stupid. Don't waste vermouth that way. And also, like, how big is the glass? If the glass is huge or if the glass is small. Or, yeah. So it's just like, that's like a dumb way to make I mean, yeah. I shouldn't say that because everybody's got their different tastes, whatever. Yeah. But I, I, I trust a man by the name of Johnny Palmer <laughs> who has entrusted me with the old Marvel Bar and Bachelor Farmer martini recipe. Awesome. And it is tried and true. It is tried and true. Nice. And I've only ever perfected it like three times out of the like hundreds that I've made. Well, you better hope for four today. It's true. <laughs> it's true. So let's listen to some Paul Desmond. Yeah. Now, have you, let me, before we get started, I did want to say, because this is our first episode of Scores and Pours Jazz Edition, yeah. and we're going to bop, you know, no pun intended, we are going to bop to and fro classical and jazz. That's how we're going to play things. We're going to riff off what you and I like. Mm-hmm. We couldn't thank our patrons enough because scores and pours is just we're barely making it by right now we're able to afford the awesome you know wines and gins and stuff that we're featuring on the program we're not yet paying ourselves but hope to someday so thank you to our existing patrons for making this possible we couldn't do it without you so grateful you can find us on Instagram too. We love to interact with you. And if you have any questions or comments, any show ideas, hit us up on Instagram. We're at Scores and Pours. You can send us a DM anytime. And if you would like to support us in the future, we'd be so grateful. Patreon.com slash Scores and Pours. There are tiers that make it really easy for you to decide what level works best for you. There's always patron-only content. And then in some cases, there's even some free merch that will ship your way or hand-delivered if you're here in the Twin Cities, because that's what we like to do. We get to get to know the patrons. It's great. And so, yeah, there's also a link there for merchandise if you so choose to support us even further and uh, support the merch. We love it. We're so grateful. Thank you so much. Emily Reese, radio host, podcast extraordinaire, <laughs> Jill Mott Sommelier, the duo of Scores and Pours. Let's jazz edition. Let's jazz. Let's Paul Desmond. Have you always been able to say you've been a Paul Desmond fan? Was he like a, a later, like how, how when you were getting into jazz? And yeah. I, I say that because I haven't always been a Martini fan. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's so funny because I definitely heard Paul Desmond long before I knew who he was because one of the most famous jazz tunes in the history of jazz features Paul Desmond as a, and is a tune that he wrote. And it's a, it's a tune called Take Five. Paul Desmond played the alto saxophone, which is the second highest of the saxophones in the larger-than-you-might-think saxophone family of instruments. And uh, it's an instrument... Because there's the, there's the bass, the tenor, the alto, and the soprano, right? There's a bass saxophone. There's a berry saxophone. Oh. 
There's a tenor, there's an alto, there's a soprano, maybe more, who knows? Do many people think that the berry and the bass are the same thing? That's a good question. If you don't know jazz well? They probably would think that. Okay. Yeah. But in jazz, you mostly see those four, not the bass. You'd mostly see, in a jazz band, for instance, you would see the berry sax, the tenor sax, the alto sax, and occasionally the soprano sax. Gotcha. So Paul Desmond, alto sax player. Alto saxophone player. That's also the instrument that Charlie Parker played, for instance, another very famous alto saxophonist. And Paul Desmond was born in 1924. He died in uh, kind of early, 1977. He was a very heavy smoker and drinker. He loved his doer's scotch, uh, but it was the lung cancer that got him in the end. Rough. Yeah. He was a doer's scotch drinker. Rough. He was married for like a half a second, like two years or something like that, early in his life, and then never got married again, but was quite the ladies' man, apparently. Um, I was going to say she was sick of waking up to scotch breath in the morning <laughs> with like cigarette, just, <laughs> oh, just danky, ranky, bra. In that era, she might have been doing it too. Who knows? Probably. Uh, but yeah, so he, uh, again, I, I mentioned that, that the famous tune we're going to hear first called Take Five, uh, Paul Desmond recorded when he was a part of the Dave Brubeck Quartet. Dave Brubeck, a famous pianist. Uh, who eventually turned more toward composition, which is what broke up the group in the 60s. But the Dave Brubeck Quartet started in 1951, went to 1967. And in 1959, they recorded an album album called Time Out. And they experimented with odd meters for jazz. So by that, I mean, we're not just in four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Maybe we're in five. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. They also did a really famous tune called Blue Rondo a la Turk that's in 9 8. Although Whoa. it's in some kind of Turk, it's in a Turkic division of 9 8. So that album uh, was a big deal in 1959 when it came out. And they actually just re released, or not re released, they just found uh, Dave Brubeck just passed away uh, in the last few years. And his sons uncovered. Uh, a bunch of the alternate takes from the recording session, and those just recently got released on an, under an album called Time Further Out, which is pretty cool. But in any event, the most famous tune from that is, as I mentioned, Take 5. Paul Desmond wrote this tune, and it made him very rich for a very long time. It basically meant he could retire early, and he did, but then he did end up coming back because he needed to make a little more money, but, <laughs> but he made a lot of money off of uh, Take 5. So here you go. Here's Paul Desmond. so nice to be sitting across the booth from Ms. Emily Reese and listening to the alto sax and jazz, <laughs> as not as opposed to classical, but um, it's just a nice, it's an awesome change of pace. You know? It is. Yeah, it's fun to talk about. I mean, so that's what I mean. I think this it is, sounds precise. Oh, super precise. I love how on the outside, it's a little bit Ben Webster. It's a little... You yeah. know, we can hear a little bit of the air, but then it, he's the hitting the, he's actually hitting the core, the heart of the note, mm-hmm. you know, right, right on, right on tempo. Yep. Yeah. It's, 
very breathy, but very pure and mm-hmm. clean and clear of a tone. Beautiful tone. This is what I mean when, I mean, I knew this song long before I knew who Paul Desmond was, yeah. right? So that's a really long, long way to answer your question, when did I become a Paul Desmond fan? And I'll just conclude that with the remark that we're going to talk more about it, so it's not actually a conclusion. We're, we'll talk more about that, because my relationship with how I feel about Paul Desmond is complex, and I love it. Okay. Well, <laughs> and when I when I hear this music, I, I don't like the word sophisticated, right? In a lot of ways, I think it, it just um, insinuates some sort of like hoity-toity, culture, especially when it surrounds like wine and stuff that I don't like. That said, like you have to be of a certain echelon of a human being to be drinking or listening or whatever. But I do think there's a certain sophistication in that sound that you can tell these are not only top-notch musicians with great writing capabilities, but we're not you know, there's something to be said. Jazz is about ad lib too, right? Jazz is about the solo, the creation you can just tell that this is, we're not just like ad-libbing and out there and like a visionary. We're like in a place that this has been, it's just been, it's just so precisely written. It's yeah. amazing. And like with the martini, I think it's, I don't like the word sophisticated, but a lot of people think so, right? When they order a martini, yeah. it kind of suggests an air of something, even though I just think it's like, it's a super sexy cocktail. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's the epitome of cocktail culture is the martini. I can't wait to taste it. Should we make it? Or do you want to talk about it first? Because I know that today, are we not going to do one stirred, which is, I think, the preference? Yes. Compared to one shaken. We are going to do that. And this is going to air a little early because there is a National Martini Day. Ooh. It is on June 19th this year of 2021. So this is priming you Mm -hmm. to get your skills set for National Martini Day. So today we're going to do one shaken, one stirred, and we're going to do it according to the recipe that I've found to be most accurate when you mix the three components together, including ice. Ice becomes part of it, but then you, you know, you strain the ice. Most bartenders would argue that stirring it is better for a lot of different reasons. One is dilution. It's really important to dilute because all of those flavors are so strong, vermouth, gin, the, the high in alcohol, and the dash of bitters, of course, is very strong, pungent flavor. And if you don't properly dilute that, you're going to have just a coarse, strong drink, right? That's just going to be too much. That said, if you dilute it too fast, now you're going to have a watered-down cocktail, and it's going to be really cold, but now it's just going to be you know, the, the diet version of what, so, and if you're shaking it, supposedly it happens about three times faster. So you can get the same effect in 10 seconds as you could in 30 seconds of stirring. Wow. But that, that, it, that's also going to be really dependent on like, what are the size of your ice cubes? People that are really into martinis would say wet ice is not preferred. I'll think of that wet ice. What the hell does that mean? Yeah. Like if your ice is colder, it's more compact and mm-hmm. it, it dilutes slower. So now you, you know, if you have 
like let's say your freezer is really cold, but it's not, it's, it's just cold. It's not like freezing, freezing, freezing. Your ice is going to be of lesser temperature. So it's going to dilute to a different rate. Wow. So like people that are really into martinis, a lot of times buy their ice so okay. that they can be like made from certain water. It can be very clear of impurities, things like that. Other people or the same people would argue that when you shake, you are like bruising the gin. What? Which I think that there's something to be said for that. I I think there's really no way to prove that. I do think they could be almost metaphorically meaning you're going to dilute it and kind of mm-hmm. you know punch it a little too hard. James Bond, why did he want it shaken and not stirred? Probably because the fucker just got done killing a bunch of people, <laughs> thwarting danger. He's trying to hit on the supermodel that's in the corner at the bar, wherever is <laughs> happening. Let's go get laid. I don't know. But like, I need my cocktail in 10 seconds, not 30 seconds. Yeah. So maybe that's why he wanted it shaken, not stirred. <laughs> um, should we make it? I want to hear one more. I want to get myself in the mood okay. to properly stir. All right. So let's Paul Desmond a little more if you don't mind. Okay. Well, in that case, we'll listen to a track that he recorded with another saxophone player of the baritone saxophone uh, varietal, Jerry Mulligan. And this is an album that uh, Paul Desmond recorded with Jerry Mulligan in 1962. It's called Two of a Mind. This is a tune called All the Things You Are. So you are just chill it is. Mm-hmm. It's just really chill, laid back, kind of. Yeah. This is West Coast jazz. Okay. Gotcha. Or cool jazz. West Coast jazz, a little more specific of a term than cool jazz, but... And you were telling me in a, in a previous occasion that that's classic Paul Desmond. As well yeah. as being precise, it is, he's a, of the cool jazz, West Coast jazz genre of playing. Yes, okay. definitely. Very sweet, sweet sound, even though he wanted to sound like a martini. <laughs> well, this is actually perfect because before we get making a martini, actually, just let's frickin' make a martini and right. talk more about sweet vermouth and dry vermouth and all those things. That sounds great. So, will you tell us what you have in front of you? Yes, so I I am choosing a really beautiful, very clean gin, just because I love to experiment, and why not not give our faithful tried-and-true listeners a tried-and-true gin like Tangray? Go get Tangray. It's delicious. I love it. I wanted something new. So I chose Gin Raw out of Barcelona, Spain, and they're known for their techniques in order to make this gin to extract the beautiful botanical essences I'm not going to talk about that today because this isn't a show about gin. It's a show about the martini. So I'm going to measure out 60 milliliters. Milliliters are much more exact. Just go to your local X-Man or your local, pay $3 for a beaker and get yourself a milliliter beaker. We'll put up pictures. They're very cute. 
So 60 mils exactly is going into our mixer. And then I'm taking one of my favorite vermouths to make a martini called Dolin out of France. This is Dolin's dry white vermouth. 25 milliliters, not 27, not 21, 25 mils. Into the cocktail shaker it goes. And now we're using Regan's Orange Bitters number six. I think one of the best uh, orange bitters to make a martini. And here we go, two drops, not seven, not one, two. Wow, literally two drops. Now we're going to get our cocktail ice that we, and you, of course, use your own ice at home that you make. And fill it, fill it up, people. Don't be shy. I mean, you're making a martini. You want it to be cold. You want the nice dilution. Cocktail spoon is preferable, but you can use any old spoon. Give it a little stir. Now we're stirring. And I always taste it first, right? Um, and I, I don't need to double dip. I can use a new spoon if I want to taste. But I always give it a little taste before I um, strain it out. Always into a frozen glass, preferably a martini glass or a coupe. I like a coupe. This is my grandmother's coupe, actually. The smallest twist of a lemon. I like to just go around the edges a little bit and then drop it in the center. Give that a taste, Miss Reese. Whoa. Could I have diluted it maybe another five to eight seconds? Perhaps. You notice how it's just a little crunchy on the end, a little crunchy on the finish, a little too strong on the gin? That's not too much gin in the beverage. That's a We needed a little more dilution. Now, which is fine though, I'll drink this, it's beautiful. Now let's make the Bond cocktail. I just got done making a lot of good and bad decisions, but I got away. Let's um, go and uh, shake and bruise the shit out of some gin. I'm going to rinse this, and then we'll start over. Okay. Can I ask you some questions while you make it? Sure. Why a frozen glass? It just helps it keep it colder a little longer. I, one of the nice qualities of a martini, I think, is that it's going to taste really delicious cold, but if it's well-made, it's still going to taste delicious after it's lost a little bit of its initial chill, and that's going to happen 20 times faster if you're having a room temperature glass. You're going to just enjoy it for less time, not because it's not ice cold, because it starts from ice cold and becomes warm room temperature too fast. So we're doing this again, all the same ingredients, 60 mils of gin. Going into the cocktail shaker. Now we have 25 mils of the Dolan dry white vermouth. And two drops of Regan's orange bitters, number six. And ice, per usual, don't be afraid. Ice her up. Ice up that cocktail shaker. Now we're going to put the two tops on the cocktail shaker, both the strainer and the top, and we're going to James Bond it, people. Shaken, not stirred. My name is Bond. James Bond. 
Okay, now that was maybe a little more than 10 seconds, but not too much more. Just. It looks completely different. Yeah, so this is a common um, this is a common thing that it becomes cloudy. That's some people would say a bruised gin. You can also tell we've entered air bubbles. There are air bubbles that we've created, which makes a lighter effect, which some people really like. That's a benefit. A lot of our people that like it, that's a benefit to the shaken nostril. Just a little twist, and we're gonna rub it on the edges. All right, into a frozen glass. Tell me what you think, Emily Reese. This is the shaken martini, 100% different. Has little ice chunks in it for one. It tastes lighter on the palate. It does, you can tell those air bubbles. I just think it tastes like a little bit less together. It's not nearly as clean mm -hmm. as the stirred martini. And it is does seem waterier than the stirred martini. Yeah, I think with the stirred martini, I taste all the components. They're all put together, but they're put together properly. It's sort of like if you decided to iron your shirt versus with the shaken, it's, is it delicious? It's okay. I, I don't mind it, but I, I would never want to utilize my liver powers and then pay $20 for this because it's good, but it's just like kind of a little bit more watered down. Way more. It's a little bit more kind of discombobulated in a way that I think if you just kind of enjoy a cocktail, you're just kind of tossing together your martinis, you're going to love it. But if you're really trying to strive for perfection and precision, your name is not Bond. James Bond. Stir it. Stir it good. Do, 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 do. <laughs> boo, boo. Okay, so what'd you think? I, I know you've had a time to process a little bit now that we just yeah got out of the kitchen studio and into the... I am so glad we did that side by side because I've always wondered what the virtue is between the two of... And it's it's always been such a cultural saying of from the Bond films, shaken, not stirred. I, I love that we did that side by side because now I know that stirred for me is far superior than shaken. The shaken one is just shockingly weak as a cocktail. And I don't mean in terms of strength of the alcohol. It's just so much less interesting of a cocktail to me than the stirred one. The stirred one has this definition to it and a shape to it. And the shaken one is like kind of flabby and amphibious and like I don't mean to use amphibious in that way. That's not fair to frogs and shit. It's just yeah. it's just not as cohesive of a unit as the stirred martini. That's how I feel. How do you feel? I just don't know why people shake their martinis. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree with everything you just said. I've done this experiment quite a few times, and even people that know how to shake cocktails and they know about dilution like they would maybe have taken my 12 or however many seconds it took me and turned it into eight because they would have known, oh, the size of those ice cubes are smaller, so I'm mm. going to shake it for less time. We would end up with a similar result, right? We would maybe have a little bit stronger or more balance uh, in the cocktail, but then we would still have the air bubbles and we'd still have just a little bit, it's just kind of cold and wet. Yeah, even some tiny, I mean, how do they prevent little chunks of ice from getting 
through the strainer. I mean, it just, I can't imagine that that's an easy... Some people love that. Yeah. Where did the olive thing originate? What's that about? Well, some people say that in Martinez, California, or around that area, when when the drink was getting concocted, that that a bartender like that was actually the original garnish oh. that was tossed in. You put like some olive brine. I'm like, do you really want a martini? Because we have plenty of other things to drink. Like, do you really like martinis? One thing that is to note is during this time of prohibition, that's when martinis really got their you know hooks in people. Really, not only because of their strength, but bathtub gin was everywhere. So it was like the thing that people could like make at home, buy a ton of, you know, bad gin because it was way more appropriate to either make it at home or you could find it a lot more readily available than you could a lot of different types of like beer yeah. or wine or, you know, yeah. other other spirits. So. I mean, vermouth must have been easy to get then too. Somehow. I don't know, because wine wine was a pretty foreign thing. A lot yeah. of people weren't making local wine. And then right. you have all the aromatized nature, whereas people can make their own bathtub gin. You know, you buy like mm-hmm. grain alcohol and put juniper in it and put like botanicals in it. And then in however many days you have gin. Amazing. So good. That's what <laughs> I would be doing right now. That's what I should have done during the pandemic is really just made like <laughs> bathtub gin. Just <laughs> clean my bathtub she really just never well, showers. <laughs> it's true. Can't shower, making gin. Sorry. <laughs> oh my gosh. T-shirt. Can't shower on the front, making gin on the back. <laughs> Where are we going next after Desmond? Clifford Brown. Yes. Paul Desmond, I will say, before we leave him entirely for the day, uh, you know, there are a couple decades there of really amazing recordings. After he left Dave Brubeck, it seems like Paul Desmond really enjoyed recording with a guitar player instead of a pianist. That's something that kind of happens in in jazz in terms of small groups recording a lot of times not all the time but a lot of times it's either a pianist or a guitarist in with the bass player and the drummer not always but it's usually one or the other you'll often find both yes but a lot of times and a lot of instrumentalists Sonny Rollins being one as well didn't want a pianist at all half the time Uh, But Paul Desmond liked a guitarist, so there are a lot of great recordings of Paul Desmond playing with the fabulous guitarist Jim Hall, and there are also a lot of recordings of uh, Paul Desmond later in life with a couple of Canadian jazz players he really liked, including guitarist Ed Bickert. So a lot of wonderful Paul Desmond out there. And of course, when you kind of hit the 60s and 70s in jazz, it gets a little rocky for everybody involved, but there's still some great (laughs) stuff out there. So yeah, uh, But Clifford Brown... Sadly, didn't make it to the 60s. Uh, Clifford Brown died in a car accident in 1956 along with the pianist Richie Powell, who was the much younger brother of pianist Bud Powell. Clifford Brown was born in 1930, and as I mentioned, only four years' worth of recordings. He was 21 at the age of his first recording, and uh, when he was in that car crash, it was uh, 1956, and he was 25. There is um, a a really cool album called The Beginning and the End, which has 
his two earliest recordings on it and his three latest recordings on it uh, right before he died. So it's kind of fun to hear just a little bit of a difference in just those four short years. Uh, but we'll listen to one of the earliest ones. And and why him for precision? Because when you hear him play his solo, you'll know. Okay. I come from Jamaica, Jamaica, she's my home. This is with a band called Chris Powell's Blue Flames. So the vocalist is Chris Powell. He sings his tune and then Clifford Brown comes in on the trumpet in the middle of this uh, little, little tune. I come from Jamaica. Let's listen to that solo again. And when we talk about phrasing in music, a a musical phrase is like a sentence. So there's a beginning and an end to a sentence, and there's a beginning and an end to a musical phrase, particularly if you're a player that has to use breath to play, like a trumpet or a clarinet or a flute, because you have to breathe at some point. So in jazz, as you're soloing, it becomes a question of where and when are you breathing? How are you forming your musical sentences to both engage the audience, engage the listener, and also breathe when you need to breathe, but how how are you being musical with what you're making up? Because when he starts playing in the middle of that tune, he's making all that up on the spot, right? So it, it just becomes a question of, you know, where are your sentences, musically speaking, starting and stopping? And uh, yeah. And do you think that, is it, are we like, we're not overly analytical because on scores and pours, we just love to learn, right? Yeah. But we're like... For him, he probably doesn't think, even think, it's like innate. Is it innate? He just probably. is like, Probably. You know, I mean, I think it's a little of both. I think really... Um, like uh, he knows what he's doing, but he doesn't need to even talk about it like we need to, because we're making yeah. sense of it, Or he just is Yeah, like, I mean, he also might have very well said, you know, I really like extending my phrases over the bar line or something like that. You know, mm-hmm. I find it more interesting if I don't end my sentence where everyone thinks I should. Okay. Because sometimes in jazz improvisation, and particularly in younger musicians as you hear them improvise, their endings are very predictable. And it's fun to hear jazz musicians who go against that predictability, and Clifford Brown being one of many. Um, Another thing that Clifford Brown gets praised for is the way he articulated his notes on the trumpet, which means you know, what space is he putting between each note and not putting between each note and how it sounds. So let's listen to that solo one more time. (laughs) 
that's really cool. I'm glad you pointed that, that out. Uh, another one I, I really want to point out is the very first track off of a, uh, an album he recorded with the drummer Max Roach. And this album is called Clifford Brown Max and Max Roach, Clifford Brown and Max Roach Quintet. And it's from 1954. And this is a tune called Delilah. And you'll hear his beautiful sound, for one thing. It's a lot better recording than what we just heard. A lot better quality, as in, of the recording fidelity. And it's so beautiful how he starts his solo by telling you, kind of telling you a story. He's not giving you a bunch of disparate ideas. He's making a cohesive statement at the beginning, and then he goes a little crazy with his fast notes and stuff. So can I tie Martini into this? Yes, please. So we gave everybody a story. Yeah. A little bit about the history of the Martini, but not too much because I didn't talk about the preference for a sweeter drink years ago. But I did want to quick draw the parallel between like... You know, you set the story for people so that they can understand where we're coming from when we're making a martini, understand where we're coming from when we're talking about the solo, right? And when you said people, when they're younger, their phrasing ends in a predictable way. Usually, yeah. Well, I think it's really predictable right now. As a sommelier, when I'm working, you know, in a wine shop, people say, I want a dry red wine. They just learn to say that and they don't even really know why they're saying it, right? They don't understand that they're saying it because of the fact that 150 years ago, the preference was for sweeter wine. So then it became not cool slash healthy to like sweet wine. So people had to, for a while, ask, like they needed to say, I want a dry wine. Interesting. And then people, then it became cool to not like sweet things. How many people do we know that they're like, I don't like dessert? You're like, yes, you do. You just have don't have good desserts, so you yeah. don't know, right? So <laughs> yeah. like so the same thing. I don't so I want a dry wine. And they and now it's just cool to say that. The same is true for a martini. Martinis used to be, and this is kind of hearsay, but gleaning from different various books that have talk about the history of the martini and looking through old recipes. It used to be like a one-to-one. Now, look at we did 60 to 25 mils. Whoa. One almost to two. Really? But not really, right? And it used to be Ratio, one to one? One to one. And it used to be sometimes they would, that one to one would be like half sweet and half dry vermouth. And then sometimes they would even be adding a little bit of simple syrup to that. So this was oh, wow. like a probably a way to drink and to have the current flavor of the day, the way that the palate was accustomed to like it because it was sweet. So then fast forward 100 years, now we say dry martini and we don't really know why we're saying dry. There was a time where it needed to be distinguished upon because you'd either get a really sweet martini or you'd get something that was like kind of dry. And now it's just, they're usually dry. The thing is, is you know when you're asking for a shaken martini. It's predictable. You know what you're going to get. You might get something good. You may not, but you're probably going to, if you're asking for a shaken martini, you probably like it a little bit more dilute. You probably like a strong beverage, but that's easier to drink for longer amounts of time because it's cold. And with a stirred martini, 
it really is unpredictable. Why? Because you're at the mercy, literally, of the bartender to not only choose the right three things of the bitters, vermouth, and gin realm, but then every time you taste that, it is literally a Clifford Brown in your glass. Where's the phrasing going to end? Like, where? how is the finish going to be? Is it going to be too cold? Is it going to be dilute? Is it going to be perfect? Yes. Hashtag scores and pours all day. Here's Delilah. When you hear him, don't be alarmed. He has a mute in the bottom of the trumpet. saxophonist Harold Land, who recorded with Clifford Brown in the earlier years of those recordings. Yes. So that did it, did did it, that's a sax. Yeah. And then we have the one that sounds like the Corky like yeah. trumpet. Yeah. That's our guy. Harold plays first. We'll fast forward through Harold as much as we love him sure. and go to Clifford's solo, which starts at 215. uses the whole range of the instrument low, low down into the low regions of the trumpet and then high. A trumpet can go as high as a player can play so there really is I mean technically there's obviously a ceiling but it's uh, you know if people can play high they can play high on a trumpet there's kind of no limit although sort of there is so uh, he was just all over the place and uh, just technically brilliantly beautiful stuff from Clifford Brown. And then the last one I want to hear from Clifford Brown uh, is from his suspected as his very last recording, probably recorded sometime in 1956. Um, there also was some footage unearthed, the only footage of him playing you can find on YouTube, which is absolutely amazing. And that also was recorded right before he died. Um, 
1956. But in any event, this was recorded in Philadelphia in in uh, uh, 56, and this is a tune called Walking. And we'll just go straight to his solo. kind of a long solo um, and, and the crowd really gets into it And you hear the super Clifford Brown. Clifford Brown. <laughs> yep. So amazing. I mean, there are so many examples in all of music. It doesn't matter if it's jazz, classical, rock. There are so many shining stars that died too young, and you just want to know what they would have become had they recorded for another 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And this is a big one for me. Always would love to have known what Clifford Brown would have become had he lived for another 50 years, you know, would have been amazing. For sure. Precision. The scores and pours to jazz. Scores and pours. Thank you for the delicious martinis. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links, a playlist, a spirits list, and information about this episode and support us financially at patreon.com slash scoresandpours. There's also a link there if you want to buy merchandise like a wine key or a hoodie or a t-shirt. We're on Instagram at Scores and Pours, and feel free to direct message us there with any questions you may have, show ideas, and the like. Consider supporting the musicians we featured today by buying their music. Edited by Emily Reese and Joe Mott, our producer is Mr. Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media, Inc.